0: Thanks for watching entity business coming up the collapse of crypto exchange ftx possibly impacting many more people than initially thought including celebrities and well-known athletes youtube testing ways to boost its advertising revenue to combat this slowdown in digital ads and is inflation relief on the horizon we talked to a manufacturer who may have some good news finally with that and much more, coming up on NTD Business. It's great to have you with us. Paul Graney here. The collapse of FTX crypto exchange could affect way more people than initially thought. Last week in his bankruptcy filing, he said it said that there are more than 100,000 creditors with claims in the case, 100,000 people it owes money to. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But today... It cited new estimates saying more than a million creditors could be affected. FTX collapsed after CoinDesk revealed that its affiliate trading arms balance sheet, stick with me here, was made up largely of FTX's own cryptocurrency token. That's kind of like printing your own money and saying you're rich. Naturally, after the news broke, clients rushed to withdraw their funds. That caused something like a bank run. In bankruptcy cases like this, debtors, FTX in this case, you usually have to list the names and addresses of their top 20 unsecured creditors people they owe money to. But because of the extent of FTX's debts, it'll be listing its top 50 creditors by Friday. We'll let you know if you're on the list. There may also be some celebrities or popular athletes on the list, The $32 billion company FTX filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last week. We have a look at who may have lost money because of it.
1: The implosion of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, one of the most powerful figures in the industry, has left investors grappling with the aftershocks. How much of this is effectively an empty product? FTX's CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, is is facing multiple investigations after reports that he mishandled billions of dollars in customer funds, causing the 30-year-old to see his own $16 billion fortune erased overnight. Now, the stunning collapse reverberating across the trillion-dollar industry, Gwyneth Paltrow, Reese Witherspoon, Kim Kardashian, and Matt Damon among the celebrities who have endorsed the crypto craze.
2: with four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the break.
1: So does fortune favor the brave? For those that invested $1,000 in Crypto.com when actor Matt Damon started touting it just over a year ago, that investment is now worth less than $300 today, dropping almost 70%. Bloomberg reporting that billionaire Mark Cuban's investment in the Titan token tumbled 99% this August. Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady bought an equity stake in the now-failed FTX.
2: you You know what?
0: I'm in.
1: Along with Brady, tennis Grand Slam champion Naomi Osaka, basketball star Steph Curry, and baseball Hall of Famer David Ortiz among top Mm -hmm. athletes, who Mm -hmm. will Mm -hmm. reportedly lose millions with the collapse of FTX.
3: Whoa, 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 Moon, slow down. you getting into crypto with FTX?
1: But no franchise took a bigger hit than the Miami Heat basketball team, who terminated their 19-year, $135 million naming rights deal with FTX. Leaving them scrambling for a new sponsorship partner one month into the season.
0: And despite the fallout in cryptocurrency, we could be one step closer to a digital dollar. That's the controversial central bank digital currency. Global banking giants and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York are now launching a test of the digital dollar. They announced it just today, in fact. Unlike the electronic dollar we're all used to, the digital dollar never takes physical form. That means it's only exchanged through digital means. No cashing out at the ATM. No cash at all, maybe. The experiment will test how banks are using digital dollar tokens to help speed up payments. Banks including Citigroup, HSBC, and Bank of New York Mellon, big banks, they'll all be part of the test, as well as Payments Network MasterCard, New York Fed says the project will be conducted in a test environment and use simulated data. It'll last for the next three months, and the New York Fed says there's no commitment for future rollout. We'll see. And ad revenues down at YouTube, so they're upgrading their ad strategy, naturally. They're testing a feature with content creators here in the States that will allow them to tag products from their own stores, hoping to sell them, obviously. Here's NTD's Sean Marshall.
3: Yesterday, NTD Business reviewed TikTok possibly becoming an advertising giant. Today we're looking into YouTube's latest move to increase its ad revenue. To keep up with TikTok's growth, YouTube is going to have to get more money into the hands of its creators. YouTube is bringing shopping features to its TikTok-like short form video service as it looks to diversify its revenue stream squeezed by falling ad spending. Shopping through products recommended by creators is popular among YouTube's younger Gen Z users who favor queryless video based interactions, meaning they don't want to actively search for products, according to YouTube General Manager Michael Martin. I spoke you with Joe Carrison, Chief Marketing Officer at CircleIn, kind of for his perspective. Uh, this gives them a new kind of avenue to even acquire new customers because it's a new platform, it's a new sort of way for especially during the holidays, for products to be displayed via YouTube and purchased directly through there. So in that sense, I think it benefits uh, Google and will start to uh, increase ad revenues uh, for them as they go on. The report comes months after YouTube unveiled a new way for creators to make money on short form videos, introducing advertising on its video feature shorts and giving video creators 45 percent of the revenue. And for businesses, it gives them a brand new way to kind of interact with customers. Um, and it, you know, a lot of them are already using YouTube for other things, so they're very comfortable with that platform, and so it makes sense for them to, uh, to sell products through there. Ad sales on Alphabet-owned YouTube slipped to $7.07 billion in the third quarter from $7.2 billion a year earlier. As some advertisers pulled back on their ad spending in the face of an economic slowdown, Sean Marshall, NTD News. And
0: down on Wall Street, stocks higher after another lighter than expected inflation report. More on that in just a moment. The Dow rose 56 points, two tenths of a percent. SP 500 gained 34 points, nine tenths of a percent. And the NASDAQ added 162 points, one and a half percent. Good day for the NASDAQ. And you finding it hard to make ends meet. Well, you're not alone. U.S. household debt is soaring here in America. The New York Fed says in the third quarter, consumer debt increased at the fastest pace in 15 years. The culprits? Higher mortgage balances and credit card usage. Mortgage balances added the most debt, followed by credit card balances, which also rose more than 15% compared to a year ago. The New York Fed says that the biggest annual jump in over two decades says the increasing debt reflects, quote, robust consumer demand and, of course, higher prices. Delinquencies are also on the rise, but they're still historically low. And wholesale prices, a hint about what inflation may be like in the future for you and me at the stores, it eased a little last month, a little. 8% over the last 12 months, significantly better than forecasts. The producer price index measures prices paid for goods and services before they reach consumers. So the report is considered by some to be a leading indicator of broader inflationary trends and a predictor of what consumers will eventually see at the store level. So joining us to discuss the PPI is Nicole Walter. She's the president of HM Manufacturing. She also sits on the board of the National Association of Manufacturers. Nicole, as always, great to see you. Thanks for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me. Always good to see you.
0: Nicole, I want to get to you and you as a producer and a manufacturer, but maybe for the consumers watching at the moment, do you see any inflation relief on the horizon for us?
4: You know what? I actually do. I've been getting a lot of quotes lately from a lot of my suppliers, and I'm seeing the trend that it is going down, especially for raw materials. I know the last time we spoke, we were up 40, 50% on a lot of raw materials. And that has dropped significantly. We're actually seeing the trend kind of go backwards to the 2019, 2020 prices. Um, It's not gonna always be that way. They'll obviously fluctuate and go a little bit higher, um, but you're definitely seeing some trends going down. Um, Plating, for instance, I know that was also a huge driver back last year and this year, has started to subsidize as well. So we are seeing relief when it comes to that front.
0: So you're saying, Nicole, because when we see the CPI or the PPI, usually we celebrate when inflation is slowing down, right? Prices aren't going up as fast as they were. But you're saying for some things, prices are actually starting to come down already. Is that right?
4: Yeah, correct. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of us are starting to catch up. So for the the raw material side of things, we're seeing that the mills are starting to kind of catch up to what the backlog was. Um, And then as well for the platers, everyone is starting to kind of relax and give some relief. And I'm no longer seeing these big surcharges. I will say though that, um, you know, as we're we're purchasing new equipment, we've done a lot this year. We're gonna be doing some next year. Um, Everyone is giving me this wait, don't wait till January because there will be price increases. And and I think that that's standard in terms of every year everyone does do an increase. But I don't think it's going to be as crazy as it was this year where you're doing 15% markups, 20% markups to try to keep up with inflation. I think we're going to go back to the 3 to 5% increases. Mm.
0: So I think, Nicole, listening to you, the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell would like to take some credit in, in what you're saying or for what you're saying. But From listening to you, it feels like perhaps the supply chain problems that we heard so much about during the pandemic are maybe starting to to heal themselves. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I I know for me, last year was really rough. I was out on the shop floor a lot trying to help my team. And, And we're catching up. I will say that we're seeing some slowdown on the quotation side of things. I do see orders trickling a little bit slower than they were about six months ago, but the demand is still there. However, with automation, which has been recent for our shop floor and being able to start seeing consistent hiring, a lot of us are starting to catch up, which is definitely easing the supply chain issue.
0: So this is interesting on the automation part, Nicole. We spoke a lot over the past year about how it was hard for you to find people. You couldn't get people to work the floor. Your orders were, were, were exceeding what you could actually produce. So you've gone and bought some, some robots to fill that gap. Is that down to the people who were working for you before still aren't coming back? Or is it just you're busier now, so you need to bring in the, the extra help, the automated help?
4: Right. You know, I would say it's twofold. Um, we are definitely increasing our capacity with being able to have the, the robots on the floor. We're able to do more. We're able to Kind of do almost like a lights out operation where we can actually produce the parts for a long uh, extended period of time during the day and the night um, but you know what it is doing is that it's allowing people to not be button pushers and so here we are we're taking our team we're training them we're upskilling them we're giving them a better value add skill so that they can uh, attend to the robot and program the robot And then go off to do more of the talented and skilled work that we need to produce a lot of our products for our customers. So even though um, we are adding the automation, what it is doing is alleviating the issues of just having someone stand there all day, every day, and just pressing buttons, and at the same time, be able to catch up with demand and lead time so that our customers are not so ticked off all the time like they've been in the past year.
0: That's fascinating. So h- how do your your colleagues feel about their new automated friends?
4: They love him. His name's Otto. It's named after my <laughs> father. Um, and you know, it's so fun because when it did come out onto the shop floor, they were all just kind of in awe. They all wanted to program it. They all wanted to be a part of it. And, and I think it's so great, especially because I have a young team out there, the average age is 35. So they really like the automation sector of things. And they do like all the progression and technology that we're adding. So, that to me um, is a win
0: win. Very good. Nicole Walter, HM Manufacturer. Nicole, tell Otto we said welcome to the family. We'll see you soon. <laughs> I will.
4: Thank you.
0: And the latest in America's opioid crisis Walmart has agreed to pay over $3 billion to settle opioid related lawsuits. State and local governments had sued Walmart, saying they played a part in the opioid crisis, a decades-long problem in which a large number of opioid drugs are still killing Americans. And this is just the latest in a series of landmark settlements with big pharmacies. The two largest U.S. pharmacies, CVS and Walgreens, agreed to a $5 billion settlements each. Despite paying the money, Walmart strongly disputes the allegations, says the settlement is not an admission of guilt. Harry Nelson, founder of law firm Nelson Hardiman and the author of The United States of Opioids, is actually sympathetic to the pharmacies.
4: The drugs themselves were marketed by pharmaceutical companies like Purdue, and uh, and, and they weren't marketed by pharmacies. Pharmacies were just the necessary vehicle, if you will. They're, they were the dispensation point where patients came to pick up their prescriptions. And, so, and, they, and Walmart contends that it never uh, dispensed except when there was a valid prescription given. But
0: state attorneys general say Walmart exacerbated the opioid crisis by letting too many drugs like prescription painkillers out of the street. Meanwhile, the opioid crisis continues to rage on. Latest data tells us that over 100,000 people died from overdose deaths in the 12-month period ending in May. Many people attribute the beginning of the crisis to 1995, when Purdue Pharma introduced the opioid drug OxyContin. OxyContin is meant for pain relief. Purdue Pharma then aggressively marketed it, which ended up killing many people.
4: There was bad information put out, and there are a number of of researchers who have actually apologized for some of the studies that they put out. There's also been there was a misuse of certain studies to suggest that the uh, medications were were non-addictive. We have very clear evidence now that the senior leadership saw the overdose death rates and basically um, uh, ignored them and, and put out false information.
0: The United States also has problems with heroin, morphine, and fentanyl. Fentanyl is currently the top killer. And a lot of the drugs are not being prescribed by doctors. They're being sold illegally. Former DEA agent Derek Maltz says China plays a major role. He says they've had a long relationship with Mexican drug cartels who send the drugs into America. We started seeing massive shipments from China into Mexico, you know, pure fentanyl being sold for like four or $5,000 a kilogram to the Mexican cartels. And now, unfortunately,
3: what we're seeing is the Mexican cartels are kind of dominating the production and distribution of fentanyl in America, but they're still getting the precursor
0: chemicals from the Chinese and other countries in Asia uh, to to make this poisonous substance that's killing at historic levels in this country. so what do you do if you see someone who's overdosed? Jennifer Thompson, the executive director of the National Association of Social Workers in New Jersey and Delaware, says there's one tool in particular that's saving many lives.
4: couple of solutions out there, right? The most familiar and the most readily accessible in our state, at least in most states, I would imagine, is Narcan. It's a nasal spray. It can be administered to anybody who has overdosed. It's really easy to give them a nasal spray in the process of waiting for a 911.
0: Thompson recommends going to your local pharmacy for more information. You can also get training on how to use it. And in other news, Amazon is stepping back into virtual care. Today, it launched Amazon Clinic. It's a virtual platform where users can connect with health care providers. Patients can seek treatment for common ailments like allergies and skin conditions. For years, Amazon has sought to expand its presence in healthcare. care. It bought online pharmacy PillPack in 2018. Amazon Pharmacy also lets users buy over-the-counter drugs via its Prime memberships. Now we're going to take a quick break, but if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, please email us, business at ntd.com. Still to come. One of America's largest airlines is refunding passengers millions of dollars. Why? And a pair of old sandals selling for a record amount at auction. Which tech titan did they belong to? With that, much more coming up on NTD Business. Frontier Airlines and five foreign carriers have agreed to refund more than $600 million to travelers. The refunds are for trips canceled or significantly delayed since the start of the pandemic. I'm sure you've been affected. The Department of Transportation said it also fined the same airlines more than $7 million for violating consumer protection rules. The airlines canceled huge numbers of flights in early 2020. The DOT then received thousands of complaints, mostly regarding delayed refunds. There will be no fines for other U.S. airlines because they provided refunds more quickly. That did not satisfy consumer advocates, though, who said the major U.S. airlines also violated rules around refunds. And inflation. It's affecting a lot more than gas and grocery stores these days. Admission rates are about to go down, Admission rates are about to go up at Disney World. The Florida theme park announced it will soon raise ticket prices for the first time since 2019, beginning December 8th. There will be park-specific pricing for one day, one-park tickets. On its busiest days, the Magic Kingdom will be the most expensive of Disney World's four theme parks. Disney said that's because of Magic Kingdom's incredible demand as the most visited theme park in the world. Epcot and Hollywood Studios will also have a different price range depending on date and demand. Animal Kingdom, however, will keep its current prices. Prices for Park Hopper tickets, which allow admission to multiple parks in the same day, in addition, Disney World is increasing the price of most annual passes. And a pair of Steve Jobs' old Birkenstocks just sold for an astonishing price. According to Julian's auctions, the Apple co-founder's beloved brown sandals went for $218,000. It's a record for the highest price ever paid for a pair of sandals at auction. According to the auction house, the Birkenstocks were a wardrobe staple for Jobs in the 70s and 80s. His former house manager saved them from the trash. And prior to the sale, the auction house described the shoes as well-used but still intact with the imprint of Jobs' feet. Jobs died in 2011 from complications from pancreatic cancer. And chocolate lovers headed to a famous castle near Paris over the weekend. A chocolate fair brought together pastry chefs, gourmets, and even chocolate sculptures. Entity's France correspondent David Vives was there.
2: According to some chefs, chocolate is perfect to warm people's hearts. Before becoming a common ingredient in candies, pastries and desserts of all kinds, chocolate was reserved for the top elite, notably the French court. Historical documents show the consumption of cocoa in Europe began in 1544. That was precisely the golden age at the Fontainebleau Castle near Paris, says the castle's pastry chef, Frédéric Castle. I would like to remind you that it was Christopher Columbus who brought the first cocoa beans to Europe. The chocolate was brought to the royal court. The chocolate was crushed and then mixed with milk to make hot chocolate, like Marie Antoinette used to consume, for example. Imperial chocolate was the title for the fifth edition of a chocolate fair that attracted chocolate makers, pastry chefs, and gourmets. The fair included chocolate-making demonstrations, tasting, and the sale of chocolates made by the best in France, as well as a cake contest. The contest winner says... Making chocolate cake is about bringing together a variety of flavors to highlight the chocolate.
4: It's a chestnut mousse with glazed chestnuts and blueberries, hazelnut praline crunch, meringue, and chocolate bisque. My family and friends usually ask me to make chocolate cake. And when I'm invited, I'm always asked to bring the dessert.
2: Chocolate pastry is a formal course in French culinary schools. Chef Stefan Muna manages an 18-teacher team at a local high school. He showed some of his students' creations. Here we have pieces that were made by children, by our students over several days, and they made and assembled the piece on Thursday, so it took them two days. You have several kinds of chocolate, chocolate created with a mold, by hand, and sculpted. In the castle's corridor, marble statues had to share the space with their chocolate counterparts. Just as the marble statues, The chocolate ones will never be eaten. They will eventually melt or break over time. At this level, for me, it's really an artistic piece. It's a huge job, where all the scales have to be put one by one on the dragon. So it's really a beautiful work. And here, it's like a work of art, actually. Except at this one, it's eatable. But you don't really want to eat it. David Vives, NTD News, Paris.
0: I would probably eat it. That's the latest in the NTD business team. I'm myself, Paul Graney. can follow me on Twitter, though. If you have any news tips, feedback for the show, please email us, business at NTD.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.